Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. Find us on Twitter at political underscore beats. We're on Facebook as well. We invite you to subscribe to our feed for new episodes through Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or go right to nationalreview.com. Click on the podcast tab there. It'll take you to all the fine NR podcasts, including this one. Listen, leave reviews where possible, help others find the show, and we ask you, if you find it in your heart, to join us at Patreon as well. Patreon.com slash political beats. Support us there. Help the show stay ad-free as it is right now. We have entry level for support of the show and voting privileges, mid-level for early access to new episodes and those episodes at a higher audio quality, and then our upper-level bestest friends for early access, higher audio quality, monthly exclusive content episodes, remastered shows, playlists, and more. All of that at patreon.com slash politicalbeats. My name is Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. My tag team partner standing by, as always, Jeff Blair. Jeff, how are you? I'm doing good, Scott. You know, I, I'm I'm proud to be doing good work here. I just hope that someday, maybe several years later, people will circle back around and find it again and, and sort of realize how great it was at the time. Well, you know, if, if no one hears it, it's a distribution problem, not a quality problem. We can we can hang our hats on that. <laughs> yeah, uh, I also like to think that like everybody who who liked our podcast will like go on to like start an influential podcast <laughs> of their own about music. Jeff's on Twitter at EsotericCD. And our guest for today's program is our very first three-time guest on Political Beats. We have thrown the door open to potential three-timers to return. With Scott, Scott, episode. hand me the axe. Hand me the axe. Thought, okay, uh, uh, okay. I'm, uh, stand back. Yep. I, I am going to shatter the giant <laughs> tube in which we have encased. Who is it we hear before I break this glass? It is Mark Hemingway. Okay, forget it. Oh, we'll leave it. Leave it. Okay. Okay. Well, well, better luck next time, Mark. Mark Hemingway's back. He's a writer at Real Clear Investigations and Real Clear Politics. Find him on Twitter at Hemidator. He's been here for Nirvana. He's been here with uh, Poetic Justice to do replacements. We call him King of the Short Discographies. Uh, Mark is back today as well. Mark, thanks for joining us. Glad to be back. Uh, you know, uh, if I didn't know better, I detected a, a little bit of foreshadowing in that uh, um, witty banter <laughs> that you guys had to begin the episode. Well, people who have clicked on the show probably already have seen it, but we like to keep the mystery going for a little bit longer for those who have not looked for whatever reason. Mark, uh, before we get into our, our, our band at our show today, give people an idea of uh, what you've done, what you're doing now, and where they can find you, what you're doing at Real Clear Investigations. Yeah, so uh, I work at Real Clear Investigations, uh, which is part of Real Clear Politics. Uh, you know, I'm an investigative reporter for them. Uh, but, you know, I do other things for Real Clear Politics. Everyone's all right for them as well. And uh, you can also sort of find me periodically at uh, The Federalist, uh, which is, you know, um, Federalist.com, a publication that uh, um, the editor-in-chief happens to be someone I'm related to by marriage. So, uh, um, yeah, that keeps me pretty busy these days. And usually some of the more music-based commentary that you write ends up over at The Federalist, which is a nice place. Yeah, um, well, yeah, it's been bounced around a few, bit, uh, few bits. Um, I, uh, I think I can claim, you know, I'm not solely a political writer. I, I, have, a small, I have a, you know, a modest avocation as a music critic yeah. and music writer uh, as well. I've, I've written a few things. Good piece on Burt Bacharach over at The Federalist, recently by Mark Hemingway. So uh, Mark is with us today. 
to take on uh, a band with a short discography, one that I've been looking forward to for a long time, one that I'm interested to hear Jeff's comments on because it's a band that Jeff has said that he doesn't uh, fully understand. I don't want to put words in your mouth but doesn't enjoy them perhaps quite as much as others. This sort of mythic quality that is built around this band, Big Star. There's a lot to talk about with Big Star, with not a lot of music, but a lot to talk about with Big Star. We turn it over to Mark first to tell us uh, why you love Big Star, how you got into them, and why people should care about this music. Hmm. Well, you know, that's a, that's a, hmm. I guess, you know, this is going to be a little bit of eating the elephant here. Um, well, for one thing, um, I, you know, I graduated from high school in the Pacific Northwest in 1994, you know, so, you know, aside from grunge, there was that, you know, whole sort of alternative revolution stuff, you know, going on. And, uh, I, you know, that was, you know, the sort of the formative music for me, you know, the stuff that was coming out of the sort of late eighties and early nineties. And so much of that music, um, you know, the, the people that were, you know, uh, very uh, um, influential to me at that time. Everyone from REM was an obvious touch point, but also there were like bands that I was a really big fan of in the '90s, or kind of cult bands like Teenage Fan Club. And uh, there's a great, great power pop band from Seattle called the Posies. Mm-hmm. Um, all of those bands were really quite. Once you hear Big Star and you realize, oh my gosh, they were making this stuff in the early 1970s, you start to really get a sense, like immediately, of like how influential they were to so many people. I mean. The cliche, of course, about Big Star is they're your favorite band's favorite band. Um, and, you know, the, the, the stunning sort of depth of, uh, you know, influence that they had relative to their success is, is like really remarkable. I mean, their first record, which I think, you know, is just gone down an absolute classic, in, you know, in the annals of rock history. Um, I, I think it literally sold only a few thousand copies. I mean, I guess, yeah. you know, as you mentioned earlier, it got caught in this big you know, distribution mass between their you know, local hometown record label stacks, which already was a weird thing to put out a rock record like that on a label known for, you know, it's soul records. Um, right next to Isaac Hayes in their catalog. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, uh, um, you know, for them to go from that kind of obscurity to, you know, fame. And then on top of that, there's just, if you start to like learn about the band and, you know, we can talk about this later, but, um, Alex Chilton, the sort of guy that's probably most identified with, um, big star you know as the sort of the primary songwriter um although you know uh, we, we didn't talk about this you know i i have there, the, the other main songwriter in big star was a guy named chris bell who has you know a really interesting story and, and i would make a strong case that in a lot of ways when we think about big star influencing other bands it was actually chris bell's influence it was bigger than alice children's said that alex chilton's life story in particular is like just absolutely insane um and uh you know it's really just kind of the stuff of legend when you start like to go through his life starting from his like actual childhood you know into becoming 
a famous, you know, teen pop star in the 1960s with an entirely different band to, you know, coming back to, you know, Memphis to, you know, reunite with, you know, old, old, you know, teenagers for the former, former teenage friends to form this new band that would, you know, <laughs> completely flop, but end up being like, you know, one of the big, most influential bands in rock history. Um, and then, you know, his, his post um, big star life was, you know, a really interesting one as well, where he cycled through, you know, the punk rock scene and a whole bunch of other things. So um, there's a lot to chew on in terms of, you know, influence and, and, and you know, sort of the storied history. And, and, you know, you get into, you know, like the history of, you know, the Memphis music scene, you know, big stars being very much you know, wrapped up in that, mm -hmm. which is really odd considering how they sound nothing like everything else you would associate with Memphis. Christ, Mark. Tell you, you talked about eating the elephant. You've eaten all of my well-crafted talking points. <laughs> Those are all, that was great. God, so all these things I wanted to say as well. Well, congrats. Uh, Scott, why don't you go next? Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm the resident power pop guy on Political Beats. Uh, Jeff, post-punk, me, power pop. If we're going to put us into categories. So how can I not love Big Star? H how is that possible? Uh, it's not. I do love them. And I distinctly remember the first time being handed that CD. Two records, one CD. Big Star, number one record, Radio City, with that wonderful, wonderful cover of it. And I think the song that was highlighted to me in advance of the album was September Girls, with uh, excellent reason, because it's one of the best songs that they ever recorded. Dig deeper, and of course, there's Mark. There's so many layers to un unpeel here, despite the fact that it's only really two albums plus something else that we'll talk about in a bit. Right. But so a few things I want to mention off the top about about Big Star, and in prepping for this episode, help put some of these thoughts together. One way I think you have to understand Big Star is, uh, well, let's get this out of the way. As Mark mentioned, they didn't sell anything. They they sold nothing. First album, both albums were somewhere around ten thousand copies. I think in their first run, which is which is zip, which is just to, which is to put, in, to put it in proportion for people. People always talked about the Velvet Underground as a band whose albums didn't sell any copies. The Velvet Underground had a legitimate live following. They could play up and down the yes. United States. They were a successful band. The only reason they broke up really is because Lou Reed got sick of the whole thing. <laughs> they were they were relative megastars compared to. Big star who yeah. actually sold nothing. So, yeah, so, so you're saying, yeah. So when we talk about it, it's all revisionist history in a way. No one essentially was appreciating this music as it came out. Everyone found it much later. Whether it was in the late '70s when some of the UK figured things out, they started reissuing albums there. Whether it's when these these two albums and one CD were coming out in the US, 
everybody found this music, essentially, years and years after the fact. So it's all revisionist in a way. To Jeff's point, and I think this is also really important to understand Big Star, is this was a studio band, period. There's a great documentary out uh, about a decade ago on Big Star, and in watching it, you realize something very quickly, and that is there is no live footage whatsoever of Big Star playing in this documentary about Big Star. There's a couple of things that have been playing in studio, but, but there's nothing live. This was not a band that went, as Jeff said, with Velvet Underground up and down the coasts playing to hundreds of fans or thousands of fans. This was a band that came together in the studio, crafted their songs in the studio. And that, I think, impacted them in a couple of ways. One, they, they never road tested the material. And the material was great, but they never really played it in front of live audiences before it ended up being on, on an album. And that, uh, that experience of sort of working with the, with the crowd finding out what they love, all of that never really happened for them. And I think that set for them unrealistic expectations about what the band could be. They thought the, the songs were great. People around them said the songs were great. Arden said the songs were great. Everybody loved the songs, and critics did too. But they never had that sort of give and take with an audience. Maybe some people don't like this, or others really embrace it. They didn't have that. It, 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 and so when that first album crashed and didn't sell hardly anything, they took it incredibly hard. They thought we did everything we could have done. We had these visions of grandeur. We thought we were going to be huge. Our name is Big Star. The record's called Number One Record. None of that came true. And that crashed hard on a lot of the members of the band. We can talk about that a little bit later. Yes, it's a, it's a, it's a sad story because uh, Chris Bell's life ended early in, in a car crash. It's a sad story because those two main characters here, Alex Chilton and Chris Bell, only stayed together for one album, essentially worth of material. It's a sad story because distribution deals for both these albums were horrific. Albums simply weren't in stores for people to buy them. And it's a weird story, too, in what Mark alluded to, the, the guy most identified with Big Star, Alex Chilton, essentially never made music like this again. Uh, unless you're going to take third and sort of spin that forward, the the weirdness and sort of the rawness. He did some of that, but these these beautiful, pristine power pop melodies of the first two albums are very hard to find later on in Alex Chilton's career. And the band went away for years and years, and he didn't make music that was sort of representative of those two albums. That's weird, too. Angels from the realms of glory this influence and we'll talk more about the influence at the end of the show but once you hear big star once you hear number one record once you hear radio city and really even once you hear parts of third you recognize where all of these bands as uh you know almost everyone who bought a record probably started a band jeff alluded to that in that joke the start of the show with people who 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 got big star were heavily influenced by the sound and heavily influenced by what they were doing. 
And it's it's an incredibly interesting story that resulted in incredibly great music. And, and in the end, with Third, which we'll talk about, ended in an album that really isn't even a big star album in any way, shape, or form. And yet, somehow, the narrative does make sense all the way to the end. Love this music. Can't wait to talk about it. Well, I remember it as being just the most delightfully easy, complete discography to collect. I did it in in, in about 10 minutes at a CD store when I was a freshman in college. And I think a lot of other people did it the same way. All I did is I got that two for CD that Scott mentioned, the number one record in Radio City. And then, oh, hey, Ryko Disc, their third album, the last one, it says it right there on the back. I've got the complete set. Cost me 20 bucks. And of course, why was I on the hunt for Big Star at my local CD depot of all places? Well, the reason was is that, you know, like any rock loving kid who was now just as he settles into his first year of college, you know, exploring his roots, the roots of all this pop and rock and prog and whatever it is that he loves, he's going back. And he's like, well, everybody keeps talking about Big Star, Big Star, Big Star. It's the name it would pop up. It's in the Rolling Stone record guide, Great Lost Band, Power Pop. You'd hear the name. So I was as primed to love this as anybody possibly could be. I knew they were hugely influential on a whole passel of artists that I already loved. Uh, and this is about a slam dunk as a slam dunk gets. So I plunked my 20 bucks down. I got home and I put on those two records and they both sounded really great. Those three albums, really. And then I promptly forgot about them for the next 10 years. I mean, then that's the story about me with Big Star. I, a couple of them made a big impression on me. The ones that I still remember now, even now, uh, that made it a big impression on me back in college tend to have been my favorite ones. But of course, the problem for me is that I was so deep in the haze of my my current obsessions at the time that I guess I just didn't have time for anything else. That was just in the height of Radiohead. This is in between OK Computer and Kid A, where I'm in a manic depressive phase, wondering if they'll break up, <laughs> listening to all of their old MP3s. This is you know where all I can do is try to plunk out Genesis songs on the piano in the practice rooms. I had a lot of musical obsessions at that time, and I was listening to bands like REM especially as well. And when I listened to Big Star, oh boy, I heard a lot of REM and Big Star, uh, or a lot of Big Star and R.E.M., but you see, that's the trick. And I think that's the problem that a lot of kids my age maybe sometimes have when they go back to a band like this. They've already heard all the people that were influenced by Big Star. They're more current, they're more relevant, and so they listen to this stuff and they don't really appreciate it for what it is. I despair of having recorded this episode of Political Beats in, say, 2002. I wouldn't have been ready to do it. I wouldn't have been ready to do it justice. Because I actually needed to know more about, maybe age, just become more conversant in music. To be able to come back to this and hear it with ears that weren't, you know, clogged full of cotton basically the cotton of whatever current thing my head was in the clouds about. Because I've come back to this recently. And this isn't the first time I've revisited Big Star, by the way. I mean, I came back to them. and You know, it's easy, It's an easy enough discography to listen to, folks. Mm -hmm. It's going to take you a full hour and 45 minutes total. This episode you know, might be longer than their entire discography. 
My Lord, I hope not. But that's true, <laughs> isn't it? I, we should try to make it one minute, one hour, 46 or whatever it is. Just like kind of that exact second. Anyway, like, you know, this is not a band that it takes long to revisit. So I've come back to them in the past. But do you know how I prepared for this episode when we booked Big Star? I didn't immediately start listening to their, again, their one hour and 45 minutes worth of material. Instead, I pulled out Moby Grape's debut album. I pulled out Nuggets, the fourth CD box, and then Nuggets 2, the one that's like the British version of it. All right. Then I listened to Big Star. And once I had been primed by all of that relentless, amazingly well-crafted, out-of-nowhere power pop, this band made also perfect sense in terms of where they were coming from and in terms of why they were beloved. For the same reason that everyone loves those psychedelic rock gems that are power pop masterpieces. Um, I have always thought that this album, big people talk about number one record and say, well, was this, this this band ever going to sell? They got screwed over by stacks, all the distribution labels. I'm going to tell you right now, Big Star's music was never going to sell. It was never going to be a big hit. I don't know who they thought they were kidding. No matter how well-crafted it was, in 1972, the world had moved on. And they were not giving this music a chance. You want to talk about another great group that had similar virtues that got completely screwed over? Let's tell the story about Bad Fingers someday. Scott, I know you and I would. Yes. Yeah, for sure. That's another tragic tale. Far worse than this one, believe it or not. Absolutely. Okay? But yeah, similarly, great band with similar virtues – Again, just the wrong place in the wrong time. If they had, if Big Star, the thing is, you say if Big Star had come out in the 90s and been like Fountains of Wayne, then they'd have been successful, but there would have been no Fountains of Wayne without Big Star. <laughs> I can't think of any band that more explicitly owes its existence, by the way, to a, a prior band in some ways than Fountains of Wayne does to Big Star. If you really want to know what Schlesinger's idol was, it was Chris Bell. You know, I guess that fusion of Chris Bell and Alex Chilton that you get on this first record. But I love these records now, and it's just like comical to listen to them, and then you, you, you do your notes like great song great song great song like that instrumental great song <laughs> oh that's 58 seconds long and it's an instrumental guitar thing but it's really great so like there's nothing to really in even the third record which is maybe not a big star record but it is a beautiful and strange and haunted album in its own way with its own unique virtues it's a crazy it's a crazy story and i guess there's really there's no more time worth wasting blathering on about it we should just get into these albums little background before we get to the big star albums about alex chilton and his yeah, his, who is this guy? his past in in the business because this is not his first band of course alex chilton is a memphis guy alex chilton he's the voice of the letter he's the voice I, of the box stops marco can can we just like go back to his childhood actually yeah yeah because that's 
actually sort of really interesting. Um, and it sort of, I think, explains a lot about what happened to him later on. So Alex Hilton was born, I think, in 1950. And, you know, you got to remember, you know, a year or two after, you know, just a couple years after he was born, Memphis became like the center of the musical universe mm-hmm. because of Elvis. Um, you know, already, though, you know, it had been building up because, of, you know, it was like the highlight of the you know jazz and blues circuit or whatever in this country through, you know, the 30s and 40s. Yeah, a lot of um, Delta blues going in and out of there, too. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, when Elvis pops up and in like Memphis is like the center of the musical universe, you know, in the mid 1950s. And you got to remember at the time, I mean, there really wasn't like an L.A. music scene like we think of it. Um, you know, we're a couple of years away from there being, you know, say the Brill Building in New York and then, you know, that whole thing taking off. Um, it just, you know, it really was, you know, probably right around the time that he became sort of, you know, cognizant of music at a very early age, you know, Memphis was the center of the musical universe. The other thing is, is his family is just a really interesting story. Um, Chilton had a, um, a brother who died tragically very young. I think he drowned in a bathtub, if I remember correctly. And his parents were both artistically inclined people. His mm-hmm. father was a jazz pianist of some talent and his mom was an artist and, when Chilton's brother died, they I think they had like basically like settled down and moved to the suburbs. And when his brother died, they just had this big sort of like, what are we doing with our life mo- moment? And they like chucked their, you know, comfortable suburban married existence or whatever, bought this huge townhouse in like downtown Memphis. I don't think it was even like in a great neighborhood or anything. His mother started operating a gallery out of the first floor and his dad just started inviting like, you know, musicians from the city, like, you know, to the house to have, you know, jam, jam sessions late into the night, like, like every night, um, you know, Chilton's entire childhood was just this like carnival of like, you know, musicians and artists <laughs> and like crazy people coming through the house. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is the 1950s. I mean, this is be- before, you know, long before that kind of thing would, you know, come to that sort of, you know, let, you know, attitude would define the 1960s in terms of like artistic free expression and stuff like that. So that, that was basically his childhood. Um, and, you know, obviously there was a tremendous amount of exposure to music at that point in time. And, you know, he was, you know, even from the time at an early age, uh, you know, obviously music was sort of coming into its own. The, the, the big star song 13, which is, you know, maybe their biggest song. I think it is probably the song with the most spins on, on, on Spotify anyway. Um, that song is called 13 because I think that's how old uh, Chilton was when the Beatles appeared on um, the Ed Sullivan show. And obviously by that point in time, you know, the Beatles are huge and, you know, he's, he's a teenager and he and, uh, you know, Chris Bell are you know already playing together in various things or, you know, know each other from, you know, playing around you know, music in, in, in Memphis and they're, you know, in their early teens at that point in time. And then we get into the box tops. And the box tops, you know, from the letter, the box tops, you know, from a few other songs. Alex, Chilton- the box tops, you know, is a song that is sung clearly by like a 55 year old. That's man, the most amazing right? thing. Yes. Uh, it's not, of course. I mean, that that blue eyed soul, deep, gravelly voice of the letter. No, it's it's Alex Chilton. And he was 16, uh, although 16 years old It's a Steve Winwood kind of trick. Like, yeah. how the hell is that coming out of a kid that young? There's a uh, there's and a, it, it, it's really weird because if you listen to big star and you know children's kind of a tenor it's mm-hmm. even slightly reedy at times yeah very squawky voice in a lot of ways yeah yeah it, it, it's almost almost like some weird party trick that he was doing you know <laughs> and and, it, and and i don't know but it, it was, it was... <laughs> you guys get a load of my old man imitation oh no it's a number one give me a ticket for an aeroplane ain't got time to take a fast train 
Just you know, kind of a strange scene because he just fell into this. I mean, I gather the rat, the, the rest of the box tops were much older musicians, um, or, or significantly older, I should say. And you know, here's this guy who's like 16 years old, and they they have this one song, the letter that is like a truly massive single at the time. I mean, really, really massive. Uh, the, their box tops are kind of the definition of a one hit wonder um, uh, because I mean, I think they had some minor singles after that, but "Cry Like a really, Baby" was pretty was pretty big, but not much more than that. Yeah. Um, but, but like the letter, I mean, you know, if, you know, I don't know if kids these days are, you know, up on their music history, but you know, if you're 40 years old or older and you're an American, you've heard the letter. I mean, it's, it was a huge, huge song at the time. You may not even know who sings it, but you've heard it. Yeah. The song was so big. Even the Beach Boys did a cover version of it at the time. They liked it that much. Like it was a huge deal in 1967. I think for the same reason that all of us, you know, it's like, why is this, this, you think this man's croaking like a bullfrog and then you find out he's 16 years old and it's just like a wow moment. Well, there's actually, there's actually a quite a story there with uh, Alex Children and the Beach Boys too, though. Um, I don't know if you know this, but um, no, actually, you know, I don't. What the box tops with you know sort of the height of their fame, and I don't know whether this is whether the box tops were still together or on their way down or whatever. But um, for a time there, Alex Children ended up moving to um, Los Angeles in like the late '60s, and he ended up living with Dennis Wilson. And Uh-oh, I don't know if just he, like everybody lived with Manson lived with Dennis Wilson for a couple I, of did, days. And that's the story. I mean, he he shared a couch with Charles Manson. Um, you know, oh my God, I knew couch. it. I knew it. I knew it would be a Manson story. That's so <laughs> great. There was there was a book that came out, uh, gosh, a couple of years ago um, called Chaos, Charles Manson, the CIA and the history of the secret history of the 60s. So it's a really interesting book. But was, um, was, the claim is that Charles Manson was a CIA like experiment gone horribly wrong. Yeah, basically. Um, and, and, and crazy, crazily enough, there's, you know, there's, it's, it's much more convincing than you might think. I'm not saying it's convincing across the board, but, um, there's a lot of really hinky stuff that was going on there with Charles Manson. But what's one of the big takeaways from the book, though, was how deeply embedded Charles Manson was with all of the celebrities, Mm -hmm. um, you know, because he was basically supplying drugs and, you know, basically whores um to you know all these parties in la and like one of the worst offenders in terms of like taking advantage of, of charles manson and what he was offering was dennis wilson um so it was it's was pretty interesting but yeah it, it's um, good it's a good thing that alex chilton himself would go on to live a life of sobriety and even killed <laughs> you know even killed bearing wouldn't wouldn't fall into any of those traps in later life yeah. but the thing about the box tops which you need to know is that the one i actually went and 
for the first time ever before this show, I listened to those, quote, later singles. I just looked at the Wikipedia page, and they're like, they also recorded X, Y, and Z. Yeah. I listened to X, Y, and Z. X, Y, and Z will not be excerpted on this show. They're not that good. They're not that interesting. It's just, again, you know, the material wasn't there. He didn't write the letter himself, I, I, if I recall. It was just like somebody, it was written to order. Right. And they just, they got lucky. And, of right. course, you know, again, you can cover that song, but you can't cover that song. It's always theirs. Uh, so this is where Chris Bell enters the, the picture. And, and again, you know, you guys are better on the biography stuff than I am. Does somebody want to explain the other half of Big Star and who this well, guy is? So what happened is the box tops kind of had this like long, slow sort of, well, I mean, it, was, it was sort of a flash in the pan. There was also a few years where they're sort of on the way down. And, you know, at this right. point in time, you know, he's still a teenager and yet he's already lived like five lifetimes because mm-hmm. of his life story or whatever. So there was actually sort of an interlude. It wasn't after the box stops fell apart, you know, he moved to LA for a while or whatever and was living with Charles, with Dennis Wilson and Charles Manson, as it were. Um, and then after that, he actually went to New York and he spent some time in the Greenwich Village, like folk scene there, um, which, you know, was certainly past its heyday of, you know, Bob Dylan, Joan Baez or whatever. But um, it was still sort of going. He kicked around that for a while. And then he returns to Memphis in like the late 60s, early 1970s. Um, and you know, he, he, I basically the story is he just reconnects with Chris Bell, who was someone he knew from, you know, a very young age, or I should say young teenage years when, you know, all the talented boys were, you know, kicking around town, you know, trying to form bands at the time because they were all, you know, being influenced by the, you know, British invasion or whatnot. Um, and, and that's really all it was. Um, I, you know, and obviously by that point in time, Chilton was a bit of a local legend. Um, and, uh, um, and somehow, I remember the story is Chilton, I think he got somehow impressed with seeing Bell, uh, um, um, or he, he he wanted to do some sort of like Simon and Garfunkel deal with Bell because he was impressed by Bell's songwriting ability. And and uh, Bell didn't want anything to do with that, but he invited Chilton to go see a band that he had formed and they called like, the, gosh, what were they called? Icebox or something like this. It's kind of failing me, but the band was basically Big Star without Chilton. And Chilton you know, really liked what he saw and he, you know, started talking to them. He showed the guys a song that he had written, which was one of the songs that ended up on a um, number one record. Um, and they just invited him to join the band on the spot. Um, and that was um, sort of the sort of genesis of Big Star. But the other part of the story was that they all basically got jobs at Ardent Studios mm-hmm. in Memphis. So they were like working by day as you know, recording engineers, you know, doing all the Memphis stuff that was happening there at the time. And then at night, basically, you know, the the guy that owned the studio, if there was any time that wasn't booked, you know, he would let them go in and like do their own thing and record their own band. The owners of the studios would let them go in and, and do their, their own thing and record their own bands, uh, record their own band. And, and that's how sort of Big Star got off the ground. I mean, they basically, they basically recorded and produced their own record. Um, and they did a just phenomenal job about it. I mean, job with it. I mean, one of the things that's most influential about Big Star really is the Sonics. Right. Um, I mean, just an incredible sounding record. I mean, like, the, like I, I'm very I, like in the history of rock and roll, few bands have recorded acoustic guitars that sound as perfectly mm. balanced and great as Big Stars. It, it's Glenn Johns level professionalism coming from the least expected place. <laughs>
because again, it's just stacks full, and you're like Arden Studios or whatever it is, and you're like Memphis. What are these crystal clear rock guitars and acoustics coming out of Memphis, Tennessee? There's there's two big reasons for that. One is Chris Bell, and Chris Bell was a Sonics guy. He had these 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 sounds in his head and had to find a way to replicate them and he had the wherewithal and the the time and the studio to do that to figure out how to get that exact sound he wanted in his head on the tape and the other reason they could do that is because uh, Arden was uh, became a Stax uh, subsidiary and when they did that Stax was flush with cash and they were sending all their spillover work down to Arden Studios so they were recording Isaac Hayes and these great soul, uh, soul acts on, on Stax. And that meant Stax paid Ardent to outfit the studios with the best things they could possibly find. It was the state-of-the-art, highest-grade quality equipment wall-to-wall. The first ever Metatron in the United States was at Ardent Studios. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, number one record is the first record made in the U.S. that features the Mellotron. And it's because Arden <laughs> Studios had this pipeline to stacks, and it got them the best stuff possible, and Big Star took total advantage of that. It's also worth mentioning that the people that were running Arden Studios were like very influential on the guys in Big Star and like super helpful. Um, like one of those guys was Jim Dickinson, who yeah. um, who's later going up, on to great fame, right? Yeah, who who, who um, ended up basically helping them produce Third. Um, and uh, Dickinson is is just amazing. I mean, he 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 cut a single for Sun Records for crying out loud. <laughs> he played piano on Wild Horses by the Rolling Stones down at yeah. Muscle Shoals. I mean, he worked with everybody, and he was you know active through the you know nineties and aughts. I mean, he he played piano on um, Bob Dylan's you know Time Out of Mind. Yeah. He, he recorded a, he produced a Mud Honey record in the nineties. I mean, like it's just um, you know. And then there was you know um, you know the. Uh, Terry Manning's another guy who, you know, was sort of a friend of theirs that's hanging around that's like, you know, worked with, you know, Led Zeppelin and Shakira. I mean, the guy's <laughs> done everything as well. Um, you know, Memphis in a lot of ways, even though people weren't talking about it quite the way they were in the 50s, was still very much the center of the musical universe in a lot of ways. And they really, really benefited from you know, being around those kinds of people with that kind of experience. I do want to. I do want to emphasize, however, though, how much Big Star benefits from Chris Bell because I think you know I, you made this point already, Mark. As I said, this is the one that you really vultured from me. Damn it, is that you know people think of it as the Alex Chilton band, but uh, if their first record is their best record, and I do believe it is, uh, 
Chris Bell is the man I think that makes it their best record and it just begins with a perfect example of that with Feel which is I think I, this is the one where I came back to this just listening to it again after my little jaunt through the Nuggets world and all that and I was like oh wait a second of course I was wrong Big Stars are one of the greatest bands that ever existed I mean I'm an idiot slightly psychedelic rock song and again the recording's so crystal clear from from the acoustics to the electrics it is just uh uh i don't think any big star songs until you get to third have any particular meaning uh and it doesn't matter because this song is a pure feel for me and it is a, a beautiful way to begin their i mean i think i don't know if we all agree but i would say their best record what i love about feel is a number of things. One is the early guitar solo. You know, my, my favorite guitar solo ever, as I've said on the show, is is uh, uh, Chris uh, not, uh, Glenn Tilburg from Squeeze on Another Nail in My Heart. And that's a really early guitar solo. Feel is a solo of like 60 seconds in. It's awesome. It's a smoking guitar solo. And you, you also have this example of Chris Bell and his, his voice. As Bell and, and Chilton trade off vocals throughout the album, Bell sings almost always near the top of his range, almost always gives that sense of pure sort of desperation in the right. lyrics. And the way he punches, you know, I feel like I'm dying. It's just perfect. Um, and I wrote down this phrase for feel, and for a lot of those first album, it's euphoric sadness, your euphoric melancholy, which would seem to be total opposites of each other, but Big Star finds a way to make it work. I mean, I, I feel like I'm dying, but you're having a good time doing it. That's what feel sounds like to me. And it leads into what I think is the best song on this first record. And... <laughs> We're going to fight in the street like the scene from Anchorman of where the best song on this album is. All right, <laughs> yeah, I, but they, I know what you're saying. There are about six or seven options, but Battle Ballad of El Goodo, both these guys start the album with two of their finest compositions ever, ever. And they, they, these are each ones that they brought to the band before they started, like kind of their proof of concept, like we're going to be a great band. Mm -hmm. I, because because Chilton had this one, and then Bell had Feel. So yeah. Just thinking about this track gives me chills. It is, you know, we, we've talked previously about songs like Proud Mary and, and those songs that seem like they've always been part of the fabric of music, and but, but someone had to write them. Ballad of El Goodo is so pristinely put together it always feels to me like it was just plucked out of the ether fully formed like here is the power pop song here's how you do it from from the way it starts 
to the second verse, when that second verse kicks in and those sort of Beach Boy-esque backing uh, uh, ahs and uhs uh, kick in, man, that takes you away somewhere else. Jody Stevens, who's pretty underrated in the story of uh, Big Star because he doesn't write. I think he wrote one or two songs over the course of their career. But he has these these pummeling fills in the chorus that make me smile every time I hear them. And you do hear a little bit of that Memphis soul, that Memphis gospel feel that sort of is, is weaved in effortlessly into the power pop song that Alex Chilton has has created. And I just can't say enough. It's like the Rosetta Stone of power pop. Everything you can track back to Ballad of El Goodo. It is, it is a perfect song. Yeah, I think you really touched on something there when you talk about those, you know, first two songs, you know, just being you know, right out of the gate, like amazing. You know, one of the interesting things about number one record when it came out was it actually got a ton of favorable, high profile critical notice. Mm-hmm. You know, it sold like, you know, 10,000 copies or whatever. Um, I mean, this you know, is like, actually one of the first things I did when I you knew the Internet started getting all the old like reviews because I was curious. Yeah, all the right people were saying the right things at the right time about this band, like. They had the help, but they just didn't have the, right. They didn't for some reason it was the wrong. It was either distribution or if you buy my thesis, it's just that market didn't want it. But one of the things that 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 they that was you know reason why I got so many favorable code the notices right off the bat was because of what you said. You know, everyone you know who listened to the record sensed that um, this was something you know that was just you know sprung from the skull of Athena fully formed here I mean like this was just yeah. a, a band that you know maybe you didn't like them but these people knew exactly who they were and exactly what they were doing and it's like just it's way too confident and, and well crafted for you know people this age to be recording an album like this and you know the Ballad of El Goodo like you say it's like their second song right off the bat I mean, it's just like damn near as perfect a thing that's ever been recorded in the history of rock Okay, you know how they say, like, you know, you have a, really want to have a truly great record. All you need to do is start great and then end great. And then who cares about what's in the middle? Okay, this is an album that starts great, as we just said. Uh, everything in the middle is also great. But 
actually what come, stuns me the most about it when I return to it now is how well it ends mm-hmm. because it's a completely different mood by the time yeah. this record rolls to a close and yeah. it is some of the most beautiful acoustic based music these just like haunting and hauntingly well recorded echoing acoustic ballads uh, like try again from Bell and you think that's the most beautiful thing I've ever heard uh, that can never be improved and then Chilton just walks right in with watch the sunrise which is every bit it's equal these two back-to-back acoustic ballads that i just think you know i'm these are the ones that shocked me coming back where i just thought to myself man i shouldn't have taken another you know 10 years to give this band a chance again songs and then it ends with that that 58 second long little acoustic instrumental that i joked with you about but that's the way the album has to end it's like a sunset so that was the reason i'm, I'm drawn to this uh point is because of what mark said about how fully formed they they seemed you know they had such intent and purpose they knew how they wanted to start they paced this thing they brought it to a perfect landing and it sold 10 copies by the way, the um, when I was talking earlier about how um, they formed the band, the song that Chilton brought to them that convinced them to form the band was Watch the Sunrise, in fact. Yeah, um, I mean, I can't and, buy it. 
And uh, the sorry, I'm remembering now the name of the name of the, the Bell's prior band was Ice Water, not Ice Box. But yes, um, it was Watch the Sunrise. Was they, they were like, well, okay, you know, and you know, Alex should join the band. Basically, <laughs> I suppose. But the middle is great too, as Jeff alludes to. You've got some of the nothing here lets you down. No, not even the one written by like you know the bassist. That was a great yeah, song, Eddie Hubble, India song. Um, but you've got some of the more hard charging songs right in the in the middle of the disc, or if, uh, if we're back in the seventies, end of side one, beginning of side two. Don't lie to me from Bell is this bluesy riffing rocker shout along vocals. Um, there, there's a bravado on the front half of the album that completely fades away by the end. The, those songs that Jeff were talking about, I think Try Again by Bell is a masterpiece. But all yeah. that bravado is gone by that point. But here you get Don't Lie to Me, Don't Push Me Around, Don't Cross Me, Babe. Okay, Scott, I got a question for you. Has that song ever been covered by anyone else? I Do you know? I don't you know. know I, no, I don't know if it be, being, being covered by the somebody The reason else. that I ask is that when I listened to it again, and the good answer that coming back forever, I had song was just a title to me. I had no familiarity. And then I heard that, don't lie to me. And I was like, well, of course, I know this song. This is a radio classic. <laughs> Clearly, it's not a radio classic, but it goes to show you that that was one that subliminally made an enormous impact on me when I heard it those one or two times the last 10 years, 20 years ago. Because, yeah, big, dumb rock riff though it is and of course that one by the way that comes from bell of all people who's yeah. the pop guy but that's a big dumb riff that works like a, it works like a hundred dollar bill it's a great one <laughs> That song is so good that you just imagined it, that you knew it. You know <laughs> yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah, like no, like I feel it's that way about so the world. iconic on first listen that you think, oh well, yeah, this must just be a classic. Right. It's like one of those songs that, like, Proud Mary is like, well, yeah, nobody wrote that. That's a blues song that people knew forever, yeah. and it's, they just did a rocked up version of it. Oh, it's it's a really good one. Simple and dumb, but great. Scott, though, I interrupted you. Well, and my life is right is another bell track. A few songs later has those soft, loud dynamics. You go from the very soft uh, verse to the big, big choruses. Uh, the way, again, the way they punch their words, you are my day, you are my life. Um, the piano has a big role in the song. I love those, again, huge, massive, big, big, big fills by Jody Stevens. And the thing about this first album that's gone by the second album is the sense of optimism uh, among or uh, around this, as I put it, euphoric sadness. There's like in My Life is Right, you came and showed the way. Now I hope you're here to stay uh, early on, like Battle of El Goodo. Um, you know, they'll get theirs. We'll get ours if you can just hold on, just hold on. Uh, it's bad now. There's a chance it'll get better. There's a sense of optimism on My Life is Right that would leave 
with Chris Bell leaving the band. There's not a lot of that on the second album, and there's essentially zero of that by the time you get to third. I guess I have to ask you, um, we have to inevitably discuss the one major song on this record that none of us, I think tellingly, I think we're all kind of afraid of the That 70s Show question, right? <laughs> right. Well, because, of course, if you know anything about Big Star, it's kind of likely that unless you're a music nerd like us, um, you probably know about him from That 70s Show's theme song, which is In the Street. It's a Chris Bell song. And, you know, you know it from that rocked-up version. Uh, was it by Cheap Trick, or is it by... It was well, recorded by Cheap Trick, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, and, and, you know, hey, Cheap Trick, great band. Uh, so uh, who wants to say which one is better? And I know we have a couple of really big Cheap Trick fans on this podcast. Oh, that's... I don't think it's essentially very close at all. I love Cheap Trick. I that's, think it's pretty... Yeah, I, I don't right. think that their version is... It's fine. It's it's whatever. But Big it's Star's fine. version it, it, is... It's, it's a pop song for a TV show. In right. My it was, it was yeah. a theme. It, it's fine. But, you know, the, the Big Star version is, again, these building blocks of power pop are all yeah. in the street. The very clean melody. Those crunchy, crunchy, yet crisp and clean guitars perfect harmony insanely simple lyrics right what i listen to when i hear in the street these days because again i i watching that 70s show and hearing cheap trick do it i've heard the song a lot by this point i sit back and i try to listen very closely to just the guitars and the way they interplay with each other on in the street that's where i get my joy these days from listening to in the street just want to point out though like the amazing irony here which is that tens of millions of people know that song and know us big star song and what percentage of those tens of millions of people have any idea who recorded it no uh, i know I mean, it, it makes you weep doesn't it i didn't it, find out that it was the theme song to that show because i wasn't watching tv but, at the time so even just, though i wasn't a huge big star fan i got offended on behalf of <laughs> But it just but it just fits in so perfectly with the legend of Big Star, does it not? You know, yeah, it really literally does. like their biggest success is one where 
no one has any idea that they were behind it. And even some, I mean, I even uh, sorry, Jeff, but even no, no, you were saying the yeah. first. I, I want to say first two or three seasons of my, that seventy show. It wasn't even cheap trick. It was some random dude that just re-recorded <laughs> in this in the street for the that. So not not just a great band like Cheap Trick taking some credit, getting some credit, but some random dude who sang yeah. uh, in the street for that seventy show also getting credit for the song. I mean, imagine how terrible it must have felt to release an album this great. To get universally good reviews, even the industry seems to be behind you, uh, and and it just flops. It doesn't sell anything. I mean, it, it's not like you know the VU and Nico. This is really dangerous stuff. I guess I can understand why that market didn't like it. No, this is what everybody says they want. It's beautiful. It's well considered. It is a flawless album. No one bought it. No one heard of it. It did nothing. Well, what would happen? Well, I mean, uh, I guess it would be surprising if the band broke up which is kind of essentially what almost happened or practically happened mm-hmm. because this is the point where chris bell basically you know the, the album gets released it goes nowhere they're not really a live act as no. we've already pointed out so like there's in like well where, what where to now st peter and uh chris bell says uh, adios and he leaves before contributing a little bit to a couple of songs that are going to wind up on the next album but from here on out, then it, this is now, it's basically an Alex Chilton band. Yeah. Bell was gone very quickly. I mean, number one record was released in 72. Before the end of 72, uh, Chris Bell is essentially gone from the band, uh, took a bunch of pills, ended up in the hospital. He took this failure incredibly hard. He had poured everything. He spent years with these, again, these sounds in his head, these sonics, and he got, he got what he wanted. It would be appreciated later, but not at the time. And he really took it hard. He took it hard that no one bought the album. He took it hard that when people talked about the album, sometimes they gave a little more credit to Alex Chilton than they did to him when it was his band that he invited Alex Chilton to join. And so this 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 fantasy of rock success, this fantasy of stardom, this fantasy of selling thousands and thousands of records didn't happen. And Chris Bell had a really hard time dealing with it. And by the end of 72... He was essentially gone. He was gone from the band less than a so, years less than a year after release. So this is interesting because one of the reasons why I think that um, Big Star has really stood the test of time uh, is also kind of the reason why they didn't like you know take off like a rocket as well. And it's it's especially interesting in light of what was going on with Bell and frankly the whole band at that point in time. You know, you know. Uh, obviously, you know, when they weren't in the studio doing this stuff, there was a lot of, you know, craziness going on and drug problems and other things like that. Um, but the interesting thing about this record is, is not only is it assured and confident, the interesting thing about like so much what Big Star did was by the standards of a lot of, you know, quote unquote, pop music or rock music, it's like really emotionally balanced, if that makes sense. I mean, you have yeah. a ballad like 13, which is just, you know, sort of a- aching and gorgeous and everything, but it, 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 does this amazing thing where it like walks right up to the you know line of maudlin and then jetes back to coolsville um you know and that's what made their stuff endure won't you tell me what you're thinking of would you be an outlaw for my love I won't make 
because it was, you know, this really sort of like, you know, forceful, resonant emotional statement without being something that like hit you in the face just to get your attention in terms of, you know, trying to be, you know, uh, I don't know, um, you know, really emotionally oh, trying way too hard to emotionally connect with the listener, which so much pop music does. And and frankly, you know, a lot of pop music gets away with it. You know, they have huge successes, you know, uh, with being. I don't know, some big emotional statement, even though it's really kind of cheesy in the end and nobody really cares about it in the long term. It's the uh, difference, were, It's the difference, Mark, between, and I was thinking about this a lot, it's the difference between what you just described and what Big Star pulled off and essentially emo music, right? I mean, that right. that's yeah. the exact difference that you're explaining there. Yeah. And, and by the way, speaking of you know differences versus connections, and, and Mark, of all people, you'll appreciate this. When I hear a song like 13, what I hear now is I hear everything on Let It Be by The Replacements, except like Gary's Got a Boner or something like that, <laughs> right. or Tommy Gets His Tonsils Out, <laughs> like the dumb hard rock songs, but all like androgynous and you know, unsatisfied. These, that, that kind of mood that Westerberg clearly was taking you know, from, from some of the, you know, the pop, but also the, the emotional balance of a song like 13. It, yeah, it's probably worth just you know, getting this out of the way and mentioning that in The Replacements, you know, the thumb, their second major label record and i guess it would be their sort of third well fourth record would it be i forget yeah how many um oh, was please to meet right? me was recorded at arden studios by jim dickinson yeah right um, and that's the song that then that's the record of course that is alex chilton which was ironically enough the closest thing to a hit the replacements had which wasn't really that much of a hit <laughs> full circle <laughs> well actually the closest thing the replacements had to a hit was can't hardly wait the song that alex Chilton himself plays guitar on for the band that jim dickinson got him in to do it so i mean there you go i mean that's that the connection between those bands is both spiritual and it actually sometimes shows up on tape but this brings us to radio city and this is this is Chilton solo although uh as you know we said bell contributes to two of i'd say the best songs on the record and you can tell you can tell Bell's influences on those songs. But what do we think about the difference between this, the second, and I guess in a, re in a very real way, the final big star record as a contrast between number one record? I think, so, they, I think it's, they sound very different, even though they sound the same in a lot of other ways. So this, interest, this, this, this difference between the two records is really interesting to me because number one record, really, when you get right down to it, um, sounds in a lot of even though the songwriting and a few other things are really sort of way ahead of its time by and large it does kind of fit in with the classic rock vibe you think of like it sounds like a record from the 70s right um you know it's, it's immaculately produced and everything else but it sounds of its time what's interesting to me about radio city is that sonically it is 
way ahead of its time. I mean, you know, uh, a lot of the songs on this record, like, you know, Back of a Car, um, you know, some September Girls and other things like that, there's like this, in particular, there's this sort of like, you know, jangle thing that is happening that's like key to the entire record that basically invents indie rock as we know it, um, you know, going forward. I mean, it is literally like the oral template for so much music that would start happening in, in the, the 1980s on through the 1990s. directly from this album and further what i find fascinating about this is that if you know chris bell already left the band although he may have contributed some some things here um uh i can't help but think that he had some sort of like massive influence on the production of this record and the reason mm -hmm. why is because chris bella put out chris bell put out a, a solo record after he left um big star before he tragically died called i am the cosmos it's an amazing record um, and what's interesting about if you listen to his solo record, I Am the Cosmos, it sounds a lot like Radio City, just sonically. I mean, mm -hmm. it just sounds like that record with, you know, sort of the jangle, um, you know, influence mixed in with the distorted guitars. <laughs> Nothing Alex Chilton recorded as a solo artist sounds anything like this record. But this record, where Chris Bell supposedly wasn't all that involved in, sounds so much like his solo record and in a very distinct, well, you know, very distinct in terms of its production and like you know, sort of sonic imprint. Um, and uh, and I would make a case that even though a lot of people would argue that Number One Record is the better record, Radio City is the record that is far more influential and it, it has a lot to do with the sonics of the record. I mean, it is really that sort of like jangle pop sound that, you know, would 
you know, become REM's bread and butter and a million other bands in the 1980s and 90s, it all goes back to this. This is the Rosetta Stone of college indie rock in terms of, you know, music production. I Scott? can still remember the crash into Oh My Soul because we talked about how number one record ends and if you have the two albums on one CD collection, it goes from you know, ST-106 into, into Oh My Soul. And I, I love that transition, even though it is a, a, an abrupt transition because Radio City starts with two, in, in my mind, fascinating songs, fascinating songs in Oh My Soul and Life is White. And there are other highlights. It's one, I think, as I mentioned earlier, September Girls is one of the best songs of their career. But these two songs at the start of Radio City, I think, are, are just um, incredible to listen to. Oh My Soul is five minutes and 38 seconds. You could fit three other big star songs in that length of time. That tells you a little something about what Alex Chilton is doing here. It, 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 it's a sprawling song. Uh, it, it's a song that moves in many different directions. There is no sort of clean ABAB construction. It bounces all over the place. It's funky in places. There are no harmonies, right? Because Bell is gone. But I love the way that melody just bounces all over the place. And the other thing that uh, that, that Marx is sort of uh, alluding to here too is. I love the tones, the guitar tones on all of these songs, whether it's Bell or Chilton here on this album. The I was way... about to say, Oh My Soul sounds like such a crisply, magnificently oh, yes. produced song. It sounds so modern. That's the bit of historical perspective that I didn't have, and it's a great point. This doesn't sound like an album from, like, what, early no. 1974 no. or anything like that. No, and, and, and then Oh My Soul is followed up by Life is White, and Jeff and we had a little email discussion before the show. This song is so, it's so great, and it's so weird. Chris Bell never would have allowed something like this to happen. I, Way too messy. At 137 of this song, I have in my notes, 137 in Life is White is the first kind of ugly piece of music on a big star track it's wonderful but it's not pretty it's not pristine it's a little noisy it has sharp edges bell wouldn't have liked that but it works out well with these chunky riffs all around it and then later in the song there's this piano that drops in like it's coming in from a different song altogether and yet somehow in the production it all comes together there's a harmonica that screws with the sweetness of the track i was about to say the harmonica is the most discordant element by far right and, and then lyrically uh you know it, it's just it, don't don't like to see your face don't like to hear you talk at all i could be with Anne, but i just get bored um it is you know being just well bored with this girl 
And I, I have to think it's a response. I mean, I think it's, you know, my life is right on the first album, and this is Life is White, and the line is, your life is white, and I don't think I like you hanging around. You're boring, you're flat, you're white. I need something more. We didn't have the sort of sentiment on the first album. And here you see this little bit of bitterness, caustic, uh, caustic personality that would only get bigger the more that Alex Chilton would be alone, essentially. Andy Helmer wrote some stuff here, but essentially alone at the helm of Big Star. But I think these first two songs tell so much of the story of Radio City. I think what you just said is actually incredibly astute, and I think it gets to again the difference between the two records. I mean, as you know, we discussed before. Um, you know, number one record arrives like so fully formed, like it's just like astounding and so well crafted that here the band comes along and like by now, you know, despite all the chaos or whatever that's going on around them, they're so confident in their musical identity that you know they they start to experiment, knowing having the confidence that they'll re retain that musical identity. Mm -hmm. So in addition to the overall like sonic, you know, um, imprint of the record and, and specifically the guitar tones, as you know, um, you know, that, that sort of jangle sound that really make an impression. The second thing that really pops out is the way they start to stretch in terms of songwriting. Yeah. And, you know, this is, this is weird. I'm like, I'm probably, there's probably not another big star fan out there that would say this, but my favorite Big Star song of all time is Daisy Glaze. Yes. Oh, yeah. It's not my favorite, and, but that's a fantastic song. And what's really remarkable about this song is the the song the, the song structure is yeah. very very unconventional. Yeah. It starts out as this like slow tempo like like gorgeous dirge essentially. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of like plodding like it's you're almost behind the beat. It's slow to begin with, but if there's you know there's these harmonies in the background. You're like you know where is this going? And two minutes in. Out of nowhere, this like snaky guitar line emerges and the whole song just breaks wide open melodically. The rhythm accelerates into kind of a constrained straight ahead beat and the harmonies of the chorus just start ascending. And then the tempo pulls back and the whole song just kind of like swirls away. Um, and pulling off that kind of musical sophistication in the context of a three minute pop song was, you know, just not something that was, you know, being done at the time. I, I think a lot of, you know, more modern alternative indie bands would do this kind of thing with, with with somewhat regularity in terms of like them envisioning these things. But you know, you got to remember, we're like you know just a few years away from 
you know, 60s pop music where everything was, you know, sort of cookie cutter for them to be doing that kind of experimentation was just absolutely like crazy. And and what's interesting is that um, Chilton himself was he's if you read what he was saying at the time, like Chilton's a really sort of enigmatic figure. And who knows whether he was like pulling people's legs. But he, you know, he, he in um, there was a wonderful book that was published, gosh, I want to say like eight years ago. It was a biography of Alex Chilton called A Man Called Destruction. It's probably still the best single source on, you know, Big Star, um, even though it's it's about Alex Chilton in general. It tells really, you all I need to know, by the way. Yeah, yeah. It, it goes into a, a lot of detail about the Big Star years. Um, but, you know, he, in that book, you know, Chilton is extensively talks about how this was all, he was, he was very deliberately engaged in these intellectual exercises in terms of songwriting. And mm-hmm. he says specifically that that song Daisy Glaze came about because he was listening to a whole bunch of Baroque music specifically Bach and Handel. And he said that the transition from slow to fast in Daisy Glaze cops Handel's movement one of Concerto Grosso number seven. Now, I haven't even gone back to listen <laughs> to whether that's the case, but that's just sort of like fascinating to me that like that's where Alex Chilton's head was at. Um, and, you know, yet it's still, they're doing these like incredibly abstract intellectual things, but are still grounded in like beautiful pop melodies. And it, it works. It shouldn't work, but it does. And it and they just don't have a they just don't have a put a wrong foot down anywhere on the record. I think we're in danger maybe of overstating how different this is from number one record. It's not like this is like the dark, unlistenable, like avant-garde. This is not the metal machine music of Big Star's career friends. This is an album that has September Girls and it has, it has like, by the way, one of my favorite, you know, kind of underrated Big Star songs is Way Out West. That's a beautiful little, that's a beautiful little melody, a very clever little country folk pop song. It's, it's It's the best song Hummel wrote for the band, I think. Yeah, it's a good. I mean, it, it's perfectly worthy of big stuff. And of course, I haven't mentioned, um, well, my single favorite big star song of all time, which is the one that comes right before Daisy Glaze, and that's Back of a Car. This is when I remember getting that number one record, uh, Radio City Two, for, and I, was, I sat through these two albums. Like, this is great. This is okay. This is good. This is good. Interesting. Yeah, I'm going to read my, my homework here. And then I hear, sitting in the back of a car. And then I just, my head pops up, and all I do is hit back on the disc, man. And I listened to that song about 15 times in a row. And that people ask me like, for the next 15 years, hey, what do you think of Big Star? And I'll tell you, the one that always will come up, and still to this day, I still think is their greatest power pop achievement. The perfect distillation of what does power pop mean? Give you the first 
four seconds of back of a car. There, that's power pop. I would argue that on a very, very influential record, sonically, Back of the Car is probably the most influential song in terms of one that you could point to. Yeah, that jangle, as you pointed out, that jangle is everything. As the template for what would come forward. I mean, that that song, that structure, those guitar tones, everything about that song is just the thing that everybody would rip off, you know, in the decades hence. I want to make a, 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 a point slash argument here before we move off the album and it's one that only came to me earlier this morning as i was preparing for the show and i i, I floated it via email and is this crazy is it no it's not not too crazy i think there's a there's a little bit more than a little bit of this partnership between bell and and alex chilton like the partnership between jay bennett and jeff tweedy of wilco and right. wilco is another band that obviously takes some very big cues from from big star but you had these two guys together uh, and, and you know Bennett and Bell were completely Sonics guys. These guys were obsessed with getting the sound in their head onto the tape. How do we do this? What can we do in studio? How do we make it sound so nice? Uh, and love those Beach Boy melodies and harmonies. That's a lot of Bennett and a lot of Bell. And then you've got Children and Tweety, a little weird, a little strung out. Um, not afraid to be a little more raw, embracing the noise at times. You see the path that Tweety takes after Jay Bennett uh, is kicked out of right. Wilco and the path that Alex Chilton takes after being, uh, not kicked out, but after sort of taking his solo career out of, of Big Star. And I, I, I just see a lot of similarities <laughs> between the way those those guys work together. They, they, they never, I don't think, created anything as good as number one record separately. I don't think... Uh, I mean, it, I think you'd say the same about Yankee right. Hotel Foxtrot. Right. I mean, I'm, 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 a summer, I'm a summer teeth guy, but yeah. Well, yeah, Yankee same Hotel so Foxtrot am I, is, but, is I, same but after of, that... But you hear something like... You hear something like a magazine called Sunset, which is uh, uh, you know, right. uh, unreleased, not a uh, you know, B-side track from, from Wilco. There's so much Bennett there. Tweety could never... Tweety could never do something like that. And yet, um, in much the same way, he, he took a really different path after leaving Wilco, Lord. too. You could, it was recognizable, but it was a different path after Bennett left and, and left some of the past behind. I just see a lot of similarities there.
was going to say, I'm amazed that you're bringing this up, Scott, because I was going to bring this up. No. Uh -huh. I think that's almost a perfect analogy. Um, um, in fact... Um, it is a perfect... Everybody remembers, you know, I am trying to break your heart. Like, you know, all the various mixing, you know, wars yeah, that they're yeah. having. Like, and you listen to, like, the remixes. They did a remix release for Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, and, like, every song sounds totally different. You realize that yeah. a thousand options. That's the Chris Bell. That's the Jay Bennett part, yeah. where it's just fighting over every second. We should... But I don't know. So... I, I do want to say one thing since you brought it up. I'm yeah. trying to break your heart is a rock and roll rock and roll war crime. I mean, <laughs> it basically completely misrepresents so much of what was happening in the band at the time. I know. Um, That's why the box set's so important. It's um, totally it's, it, unfair to Jay Bennett, yeah. who look. I'm sorry. I haven't given a damn about Wilco since Jay Bennett left that band. I don't even um, think it's that unfair to him. We've talked about. First of all, this is a big star episode. Now we're talking about Wilco, <laughs> but but like I, now we might have to cut this. But like, yeah, I don't. I, I think I think it makes it clear that that Tweety's out to lunch and they're just simply not like they they can't relate to one another. Well, I, I just think that basically after Yankee Hotel, Hotel Foxtrot, I mean, I don't know. They they they. I don't know. The, you will go very quickly devolved into something that was like, yes. I don't know, an Americana, you know, you know, gormless Radiohead type thing with Nels Klein wanking over yes, everything for yes. six minutes at a time. I made um, I made the same and, argument on the Wilco show, uh, essentially, uh, I, I think. Yeah. The, 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 the but, special um, I, sauce I, I, was was real quick. Is, plug is, I was going to say real quick plug before, so we can get off of Wilco. <laughs> There's actually a documentary that someone put together that didn't get a lot of attention. It's called I think it's called Where'd You Go, Jay Bennett. It's about yes. Jay Bennett's life yeah, and all I of this. I seen that, it corrects a lot of the, the misinformation and has some of the older members of Wilco in it and things like that. And it's, 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 it's quite good and it's, it's worth seeking out. But, but yes, I'm, I'm really impressed, Scott, that you seized on that analogy because it's exactly one that I was thinking of. And it's, it's another, again, very quick echo of how we started the show where both of you say, you know what, Bell was really the guy who had this, Bell was really the influential guy, Bell was really this. It's the same way with, with Wilco. Sadly, Jay Bennett passed away. Of course, Chris Bell also passed away way too young. And you have Tweedy and Chilton sort of carrying the banner of this old music and people who listen maybe say, yeah, you know, Bell was a really big part of this. And Bennett was a huge part of Wilco's sound for those albums. Yeah, but here's the one thing you can say on Alex Chilton's behalf is that uh, Chris Bell wasn't a part in any way of the third big star album. If you want to call Sister Lovers or third this is an album that wasn't released at the time. It only came out later in, like, you know, after-the-fact fashion. And, and really, um, Jeff, it's never come out. I mean, there, there's, yeah, it's there's never no finished. set sequence of songs. No one knows the, the sequence no one knows it would have been. You know what? But I have my good old, good old Ryko disc reissue from, like, <laughs> 1992 or whatever. Yes. As far as I'm concerned, that's canon. If Jim Dickinson that's says right. it's what the band would have wanted, then I'm willing to accept it. And the thing is, that album is still pretty damn great. I mean, it's dark, it's weird, it's strange. It is not the same kind of pop, concise virtues that these last two big star albums were. But Sister Lovers is a, a haunted and just glorious, largely acoustic album where I actually don't think they set a foot wrong, even right on down to the choice of the covers that they use on it.
I'll, I'll be blunt, which is just to say that third Sister Lovers, whatever, has never um, affected me or been a record no. that I cared as much about as the first two. Having said that, you know, I feel like it's like that old joke, you know, bad big star is kind of like bad pizza or bad <laughs> sex. You know, even when it's, you know, bad, it's really not that bad. Um, you know, there's so much good stuff on here. You know, even the, you know, Jesus Christ, which is in the, 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 which is interesting because, um, Chris Bell went on to become like a big sort of born again Christian before he yep. died. And Alex yep. Chilton was like way into astrology and a Southern eccentric in that regard. Um, but, but, but that song written by, you know, Chilton or whatever is like the closest thing that, you know, uh, big star done that like you know that you might be considered cheesy and it's still just a great song it's just you know really well crafted um you know i i you know there's i again it didn't affect me nearly as much as the other two records but i got no complaints about it really either i mean it's it's, uh, it's an interesting record yeah when i was in college i'm going to tell you it was the darkness of this record that affected me more than the other two the other two power pop masterpieces that everyone celebrates it was the weirdness of of, of hearing alex chilton singing a song like holocaust okay which i think scott identified in our show notes as like one of the happiest <laughs> most upbeat songs ever written oh i said it's it's the uh, it's the smell the glove of of songs how much more black could this song be none None more black. Yeah, you love that upbeat power pop from Big Star. You're going to love a song like Holocaust. Well, how is that song again? What is it? With You're a wasted face. You're a sad-eyed lie. You're a Holocaust. And it's a slow acoustic dirge. But you know what? It's a beautiful one. Everybody goes things are just like bizarre like weird this isn't like listening to sid barrett right. having a mental breakdown on those solo albums uh, which are actually i've never liked like the madcap laughs and stuff like that bad stuff because he, he was not the man who should be making an album alex chilton was clearly on his way down to this album's backstory apparently like there was a woman he was in a relationship him yes, and the other so. guy in the band were both dating sisters yes. so the album was like subtitled sister lovers it was just a little joke uh, but of course Chilton's relationship with the one was very stormy she was apparently singing on most of this material and then you know as their relationship went sour her voice got stripped away and her songs got dropped um, so there's a lot of anger and a lot of sadness in it and I think it informs a song that in a weird way this is one of my most unexpected favorites of Big Star's career it's their cover of Femme Fatale the Velvet Underground song. And boy, the continuity here. The Velvet Underground linking hands with Big Star. <laughs> and one of the things that I realized when I got that CD when I was in college, having already been an R.E.M. fan and listened to Dead Letter Office and really oh, kind of uniquely among R.E.M.'s covers, I loved their version of Femme Fatale because they did it different than the Velvet Underground did. And it was only after hearing Sister Lovers that I realized that what, they, what R.E.M. was doing was basing their cover version on this one. This beautiful, haunted, warbling, keening wail 
but Alex Chilton hits those notes and he follows that melody and he sings every lyric with just dripping bitterness. There's anger behind that song. Little boy, she's from the streets Before you start, you're already beat She's gone to play for a fool Yes, it's true Everybody knows The thing she does to please She's just a little tease See the way she walks Hear the way she talks Jeff mentioned Alex Chilton's girlfriend, uh, I guess kind of off and on again, uh, Lisa. And I think there's a, there's a key to what's happening here through, through her. Uh, Jim Dickinson would later say you know, that this album is all about deteriorating relationships, whether it be a band with the label, with the girl, with the musical family that built it, Arden. This is where it all comes out for, for, for Chilton. And, um, Lisa was at times an inspiration and at times, you know, uh, a thorn in the side, but she's everywhere on this album. One of my favorite tracks is You Can't Have Me, which is A, a great song, and B, a lot of people look at this as, as Alex Chilton's sort of kiss off to the, the entire music industry. You Can't Have Me, uh, you know, he's going to do his own thing. He had the early success and whatever he does now, he's going to do on his own terms. But I always see this too, or perhaps instead, as as a song about Lisa, because th- there's a line in there that the, 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 the drummer said, "You were not very clean," and I know what he means. As you mentioned, the, uh, they were both dating sisters. The drummer would perhaps have that information. There's a lot of lyrics about betrayal and espionage and stealing things, and the mix here is bizarrely wonderful with like this squonking saxophone there's a lengthy drum solo by Jody Stevens for I'm not sure why but it works weird synth bass like it's so strange and yet it really does work um you can't have me uh is a, is a really wonderful track whether it's about the record industry or about about Lisa Gymnast, Some tracks on here are very strange and very discordant and very hard to listen to, but it is not without really neat pop moments, too. Uh, Stroke at Knoll is one of those really nice moments. Blue Moon is sweet. 
essentially you sort of have this schizophrenic quality from song to song depending on the mood, right? Depending on what is, is, is being conveyed here. Um, there's a track called Downs, which is one of the bonus tracks. And yeah, that was one of the discarded ones. Yeah, it's the story is that someone actually told Alex Chilton, hey, that, that could be a hit. That's a good song you got there. And Chilton went back and destroyed it and stripped it apart and took it down and made it sound like something no one would really ever want to hear. That was his attitude toward the business. That was his attitude toward trying to sell records. So no surprise that not a single label bit and decided they wanted to release third. AC, coast to coast, high cool, suffering I lie with you, naked on the sun, love, oh, So I think one of the things why I I have such a um, I don't know the, the third is such a fall off for me is precisely because I love the first two records so much that even though third has absolute moments of, of, of brilliance um, and there's a lot of them frankly it it really is the sound of a band just like falling apart and it's like the sound of a band that I cared a lot about you know falling apart um you know it's kind of weird it wasn't like i was like living through the band uh you know going through this drama at the time you know and following their every move or anything like that but you know for most people you know their introduction to big star was you know the you know double cd or whatever of number one record you know, radio city and that was the thing that you know you had on repeat and so by the time you get around to third it's just like you realize that like something like this unique and special or whatever is just unsustainable and they're and, and listening to them just, you know, sort of like literally do their best to, you know, communicate how they're falling apart, you know, by working through their problems the only way they know how artistically it's just like, it's almost painful to listen to in some ways, you know, which shouldn't detract necessarily from like the objective quality of it. I mean, if this record just existed in isolation, I'd probably like it a whole hell of a lot more than I do, which is again, not to say that I don't like it. I like it a lot. It's just, really interesting to me that uh um they they're they're so good at communicating what's going on in such oblique and intellectual ways whilst retaining their identity i'd rather shoot than a man i worry whether this is my last life and girl if you're listening i'm sorry mentioned too one of the reasons that it might not be a big star album andy hummel left after after the last album so he's not here so it's down to 
um, you know, essentially uh, um, uh, the drummer, Jody Stevens, and, and Alex Chilton. And even when they're recording these songs at Arden Studios, if you look at the, the tapes, you know, labels on the tapes, none of them say Big Star. They say, like, Alex and Jody Project or, or just Alex Chilton stuff. It doesn't say Big Star. And I think, I, I think it was Jody later on that said this was never, a lot of these songs were never even meant for a Big Star project, but that's how they ended up being labeled. It's, it's essentially an Alex Chilton solo project. And to Mark's point, well, that's why it sounds like a band that's not there anymore. Well, then can't we salute it as being the greatest Alex Chilton solo album ever <laughs> by far? That would be a good, that would be a good way to do it. Um, I mean, this is like a nine out of ten album for Alex Chilton as a solo artist. Then, because yeah. I don't I don't know if I buy that. First of all, oh. by the way, that song that Jody Stevens brings, I like that. The one with the strings, I can't remember. Yeah, the title for you of it right now. For you, well, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful it's little nice. pop track. Yeah, right. Um, and, and I don't. I guess I don't buy this as being such a radical departure from Radio City, so much as it is to me a natural evolution of a guy heading into a ditch. So, like you know, I'm I'm custom the Neil Young discography. Remember Scott, the Ditch trilogy. The guy's this guy who does Harvest, yeah. Heart of Gold, and all of a sudden <laughs> he's doing Last Dance and screaming about Wake Up, it's a Monday morning. You know, on Time Fades Away, and then Tonight's the Night right yeah. after that. That's great. That's artistic evolution. I just wish I'd known what would have happened next. Now, of course, maybe it ends with them all hitting a brick wall, unfortunately. That's that's indeed, in fact, probably what would have happened. But the music itself, I think, is actually good. Uh, I get, though, what Mark says. It's like, well, relative to where they were, I just wish I'd heard more of that music. But you're not going to get any more of that music. Hey, that's the way I feel about listening to those two early REM albums. Boy, I wish I could hear more of this murmur stuff. But no, they were going to start giving me I don't know, monsters someday. By the way, if you didn't know, and it to- makes total sense, Mitch, Mitch Easter, who produced those early REM albums, is a massive, massive Big Star fan. It was one of the... No uh, surprise. Yeah, one of the talking heads from that from that documentary from a couple of years ago, Nothing Can Hurt Me, which is very good. But Mitch, Mitch had some really neat, neat things to say about Big Star in that documentary. Yeah, I mean, I if, think... It, yeah, is her saying? Easter had a, a, a well-regarded... Um, band in the 80s himself called let's active and the influence is pretty overwhelming yes mm-hmm. well so like so third maybe it's the 0.5 big star album because i think a song like thank you friends that sounds to be like a big star song that has it's a nice pop folk melody that one was almost boy it's almost produced that my friends have got chaos i'm I think it's a good record. 
may not be a big star record. But it's, of course, where the story ends. Unless you're one of those weirdos who bought... Did, have either of you guys listened to this three-CD, like, the Sister Lover Sessions thing? No, I have not. Apparently has like, I have not either. I mean, I, I, don't, I mean, maybe, maybe I'm insufficient in my devotion, <laughs> but I, I didn't feel the need. Did you, Mark? Oh, uh, no. So, do, so what do we want to do now? Do we want to discuss the weirdness of Alex Chilton's post-Big Star career for a little bit here before we wrap I mean, up? It, it's probably worth just, you know... Um, you know, Just pointing out what it. was different and why nothing ever quite happened like this again. I so guess. I, 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 I made this comparison to you earlier, which is, you know, obviously um, the replacements, you know, the um, Big Star was a huge influence on them to the point that they recorded one of their records at Arden Studio produced by Jim Dickinson and they wrote a song called Alex Children. Um, but you know, I feel that there was definitely an affinity between those two bands, especially, you know, the replacements had their own struggles with, you know, obscurity relative to their influence. Um, but what is interesting to me is like, it seems like both Paul Westerberg and Alex Chilton, like took the same exact path, which is that, you know, they, they clearly like struck gold early on as songwriters as part of this band. And then it's not so much that they weren't able to capture lightning in a bottle again. It's just that like they were both when they were both of those, you know, of their most fertile artistic periods, they were in a band um, that was where there was so much chaos and they were confronting their own personal demons, you know, in terms of alcohol and addiction and, and whatever else was going on with the two men. And they just made a conscious decision after going through that, that, they just weren't going to, you know, allow their artistic, you know, genius or whatever to consume them that way again in, in a way that could be destructive. So consequently, you know, both Chilton's solo career and um, um, Westerberg's solo career are very similar in the sense that there's a lot of, you know, sort of individual highlights, but like nothing even, you know, comes close really to, you know, the, the, the records from the, the band that made them, you know, put them on the map. And I think they just consciously chose to make a decision, you know, that, that music was something to be fun, something that they would enjoy and, mm -hmm. and they would, you know, sort of like, you know, bask or even coast on their influence, you know, con content with what they had already achieved even at a young age. Um, and, and they did that, frankly, for their own sanity. Um, you know, as we mentioned, you know, Chris Bell died, you know, still struggling with addiction issues in a car crash at a tragically early age and put out an absolutely brilliant solo record, though, um, Whereas, you know, Alex Chilton was, I think, living in the New Orleans suburbs and, you know, died of a heart attack mowing his lawn, uh, you know, <laughs> sort of content um, with, you know, what he had done. Um, and, you know, I I still have, I found this a great reissue of Chris Bell's solo album, I'm the Cosmos on Clear Vinyl. I still listen to it a uh, fair bit. It's just an absolutely tremendous record.
had, I've got a massive LP collection. I've had several Alex Children records I've found crate digging over the years, you know, come in and out. And I always end up just selling them because no, you know, there's always some good songs, but like no one record in and of itself is that memorable. Um, but what's interesting about Alex Chilton so much is that he was so young throughout all of this that after Big Star broke up and he, you know, kind of regrouped and started playing music again, he just did what he'd always done. You know, he, you know, whereas he'd been through the, the folk scene in Greenwich Village, by the late 70s, he's, you know, very much part of the punk scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and he goes through that. And what's also interesting is that, you know, as all these bands start popping up um, that are so heavily influenced by Big Big Star, like children just kind of shows up on their doorstep. And, you know, he's playing with like the DBs and he's playing with all of these, you know, 80s jingle pop bands. And then when um, Teenage Fan Club comes along uh, and, and they put up Bandwagon S, which is his big cult record in the early 90s, what does he do? Chilton flies to Scotland and hangs out with them and plays with them. <laughs> I mean, he did this throughout, you know, until he died at age 59. He was just like this sort of musical guy just flitting around, you know. He was uh, enjoying his life, actually. I mean, that's completely. actually like living his best life. He's like, wow, you said you, you, you're influenced by me and I like your music. You know what? I can just fly out there and play with you. I don't have to do an album. I don't have to tour. I can go back and mow my lawn when I'm done. Yeah, That's and good. we should mention that Big Star did "quote unquote" reform, right? Right. Um, you know, starting in the '90s. Um, I mentioned the Posies earlier. Um, Ken Stringfellow and, and John Hour, the two of the songwriting geniuses in that band, were instrumental and played with Chilton and is part of the reform band. Um, you know, Peter Buck, I think, got in the action at some point in time. There were various tribute concerts to Big Star. I mean, Big Star really did, starting in the 90s, but really through the early aughts, early through the first decade of the 21st century. I mean, there was a lot of sort of Big Star activity around the margins celebrating what they had done because they were just that influential. And there was another album, too, which we're not going to discuss because it's just it's it's, it's a, not a big star right, album. I mean, right, if, if right. third is only disputably big star, well, then this how could this ever be? Third is a big star album because it, it carries forward that narrative of Alex Chilton's sort of psychological dissolution mm-hmm. and the band's disappointment, and it has some of the original personnel. But I mean, you know, heck, if we aren't going to discuss the Pixies reunion album, we aren't going to discuss this. <laughs> and you know, uh, Mark mentioned you know the influence in all these bands that have already been mentioned. Heavily influenced, heavily in debt to Alex Chilton and, and the Big Star Sound, and yeah, Teenage Fan Club, absolutely, and, and Westerberg. Um, you know, Matthew Sweet is another guy. There was a. Uh, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm going to miss this note, but there was there's a song I think on third that I wrote down. Clearly, Matthew Sweet was taking notes, and I, I forget which one it is. But Matthew Sweet clearly a guy who was also influenced by uh, by by Big Star. So that that influence, you know, continues uh, to this day with bands that that pay tribute to the the sound that Big Star created and the sound that, that Chris Bell and Alex Chilton helped put uh, put together. Chilton's career is, you know, post uh, post uh, Big Star is just uh, a wild and woolly mess. But he, right. one, we can say he did only what he wanted to do. I mean, that that is that that is the truth. And so when he got Big Star back together and started playing Big Star songs again, we can only deduce that. Is what he, he wanted like to do, it. and that I, made I've him happy. Felt, remember when I described his childhood? I always felt like there was this weird parallel where you know his parents went through this tragedy and came out the other side, and were like, you know, screw it, you know, we're throwing caution to the wind, and you know, not going to try and pursue the expectations other people 
have for us as, you know, a suburban family and we're just going to do the things that make us happy. I feel like Alex Chilton paradoxically, you know, went through with all, with all that excitement. He said, screw it. I'm going to go to the suburbs. <laughs> just a nice, safe life. Well, no, but he, but no. he, he, he did kind of do that, but it's yeah, he, also, he, but he also lived his life. Right. But yeah, he also like just again, through caution to win. Well, I'm going to go to the punk scene now. I'm going to yeah, exactly. play with this band. I'm going to do this. And I'm, j- I'm only going to do the things that I want and just completely stop chasing success or perfection or whatever it is that people expect of me. That's a beautiful way of putting it, Mark. And by the way, one of the things we're gonna, this is one of the easiest and also in some ways stupidest episodes we've ever done in terms of the way we end it. Where we're, we're about to do our like two albums and five key songs because <laughs> listen, gosh, there I are, wonder what there albums are, they are. There are only three albums, and I could cheat by saying, "Well, get that two for and then get third. Oops, there you go. You got the whole discography." But I do want to emphasize for for a band with such a small discography, and you and if you hadn't already been familiar with Big Star, you might be wondering. I hope the clips you've heard and just go get the albums. You'll understand immediately why everyone loves these. They're two flawless records. The only truly frustrating thing about Big Star is that there isn't more of them, and this is all yeah. we've got. Well, there we go. There we get to the point of the episode where we. Take a look at the two albums we uh, tell you you have to own, the five songs you should hear from Big Star. I I, I hope, I imagine that there are people out there uh, listening to Big Star for the first time, perhaps, and maybe our choices will guide them on the right path. Uh, Our guest, Mark Hemingway, first three-time guest, uh, your two albums, your five songs, please. Well, the two albums are obviously, as I've made pretty clear at this point in time, you know, number one record and Radio City. However, I, you know, I just want to throw in an honorable mention for, again, Chris Bell's solo record, I Am The Cosmos. If you love Big Star and you listen to I Am The Cosmos, you're going to be right at home. And I cannot say that about any other, like, Alex Chilton solo thing. Um, it just doesn't, just doesn't seem like Big Star the way that there's, like, this direct continuity between Big Star and I Am The Cosmos by Chris Bell. And, and on top of that, it's just, like, an absolutely great record. Five songs? Uh, yes. So I've already talked at length about Daisy Clays, which is my personal favorite Big Star song. Um, September Girls, um, just, I don't know. I mean, like, I'm just a sucker for, like, perfectly crafted pop song like that. Also, we didn't mention that September Girls was famously covered by the Bengals mm-hmm. on, you know, their big record with Manic Monday, I believe. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that was one other, you know, weird taste of Big Star fame. Uh, um, so that's uh, worth something. I'm in love with a girl. I don't know. There's just something about that, you know, sort of slightly bouncy melody of that song. Just, Played yeah, that song at my wedding reception, so it's got Aww, a special. That's place. always yeah. that's always a good sign. All right, it's a great song. talked a bit about 13 you know and had just what a perfect ballad that is i mean it's just absolutely perfect i'm you know you know i grew up in the 80s the era of the schmaltzy power ballad like this is the exact opposite of that it's like the perfect you know um nostalgic emotionally balanced mature ballad and just doesn't get any better than that 
and then back of the car. It's just, it's such, the first time you hear that song, you know, from someone my age, you know, who's going backwards to Big Star and its influence. The first time I read that song, I was just like, oh my gosh. I mean, like, this is like the Rosetta Stone of indie rock. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's just great. And I'll throw in an honorable mention. I don't know. It's it's like I, I've talked a little bit about earlier, but I, I've always just had a soft spot for Jesus Christ, you know, in terms of like if you were to put together a, a, a rock and roll Christmas album that would make a, a, a great addition. <laughs> All right. Um, my two albums are number one record and Radio City, and not much more to say about that. You can even get them on the one CD if you want, although no one buys CDs anymore. Songs, uh, Ballad of El Goodo is... I believe my favorite big star song of all of them. And so that tops my list of songs that you absolutely have to hear. I'm going to take one more from that first album. And that is my life is right. Uh, from, uh, from radio city, uh, September girls and Oh, my soul, the first song on the record. And then I will take one from third. And that is the one I spent some time talking about. You can't have me. Uh, those are my five songs to recommend. Jeff over to you. Uh, uh, you know what? Can you guys give me a couple of minutes so I can figure out what my top two albums are? I didn't prepare. Uh, <laughs> no, okay. Well, actually, I you know what? I was I was going to be cute and say that my top two was number one record and then third, <clears throat> precisely because I think third gets you know it doesn't get enough credit. Realistically, though, it, it's Radio City. But even more realistically, do what we did. Just buy the two CDs. There you go. Problem solved. It's a ridiculous question in this case because it would be like saying name the top two albums from Joy Division, for God's sake. You know, maybe someone, some jerk will have to say substance, but we already know what the answers really are. Uh, as for the songs, well, that's almost equally as hard. I guess I'll start by saying uh, uh, Back of a Car is also my favorite big star song of all time. And I already explained why. It just jumps out at me. It says, one, even when I was too busy to pay enough attention to this music, it made an immediate impression on me. From the debut album, I guess Feel, a Chris Bell classic, first song on the record, and now I hear it, and I just so immediate and so non-obvious, as a, and also it's just obviously great pop song. I think, you know, on the other end, the flip side, Try Again, it's just it's such a hauntingly beautiful acoustic song from bell um and a beautiful melody and again i just can't i cannot get over how well mic'd those guitars are um from the uh, third album i'll say thank you friends which is this is not an album that people think of as being a very pop friendly record but thank you thank you friends to me is actually a pretty inviting melody pretty inviting hook a really fun song and i'll end with uh, a song that I, I guess is actually pretty quickly becoming if not my also favorite big star song my second favorite just revisiting it, and that's, I think, arguably the greatest thing that Alex Chilton never wrote by himself. That's Watch the Sunrise. It's the uh, penultimate song off of number one record. It's just this beautiful little... I, when you start, you think, well, is this going to be an instrumental? Uh, and you think, well, that would be fine. That would be fine if it's just an instrumental. And then this beautiful melody comes in, and then the chorus comes in. And before you know it, you just have a legendary pop song wrapping up a legendary album that no one knew about at the time, but everybody gets to celebrate now. And watch the sunrise
we go. There is the Political Beats look at the music and career of Big Star. And I think once we're mixed, uh, yeah, we'll be longer than the actual discography of Big Star. It's okay. <laughs> Mark Hemingway, thank you for coming back, being our first three-time guest, walking us through Big Star. Find his stuff at Real Clear Investigations, Real Clear Politics, and The Federalist. Follow him on Twitter, at Heminator. Mark, thanks for joining us again on Political Beats. It was a distinct honor. Uh, Jeff, we uh, we rarely, rarely do this, but due to uh, to planning on our part, which doesn't usually happen, we have almost what seven twelfths of the year figured out. I think for our our, our yeah. upcoming episodes, it is weird and strange. And if you are a Patreon supporter, you know what those bands are. On that list we, I put it out earlier this week. Oh, oh no, I was going to drop vague hints and say that we were going to have to rise and shine early, you know, uh, early in the day and, and put on something warm for yeah. our next episode. Yeah. Well, you can still do that on Twitter. Just our, our best friends, our Twitter friend, or I mean, our, our, oh. our Patreon fans, friends know, but you can tease our, our Twitter followers. Giving away the secrets. You there you go. Uh, at Esoteric CD on Twitter, if you wish to be teased. You can find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. If you want to know the upcoming bands, Hey, Patreon's right there. Patreon.com slash Political Beats. Support us, help the show stay ad-free. The entry level, the mid-level, and the upper level. Best friends, early access, higher audio quality, monthly exclusive content, episodes, remastered shows, playlists, and more. Patreon.com slash Political Beats. Subscribe to the feed, get those new episodes. Find us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Political underscore Beats. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats.